In this week's episode, I chat with my friend Paco de Leon about her new book, Finance for the People. We chat about unhealed trauma and debt, capitalism and investing, why gratitude can change the way you think, and so much more. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, the Mental Health and Wealth Show, the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Welcome to the Mental Health and Wealth Show podcast. This is your host, Melanie Lockhart. My journey with money and mental health started in 2012 when I was depressed and anxious about my student loan debt. In 2013, I started my blog, Dear Debt, which chronicled my debt payoff journey and changed my life. I later published my book of the same name about how I paid off $81,000 in student loan debt. It was my time blogging that showed me that I wasn't alone in my mental health struggles around money and that my own mental health impacted how I related to money. My mission now is to help others feel less alone and tackle these difficult topics. As a disclaimer, I am not a mental health professional or a financial professional, and all content on the show should not be considered professional medical or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. If you are in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741741. Thank you so much for being here, and if you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform, and feel free to share episodes on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockhart. I would love to hear from you. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing my friend, Paco de Leon. Paco is the author and illustrator of Finance for the People, her amazing new book. She founded the Hell Yeah Group, a financial firm focused on inspiring creatives to be engaged with their personal and business finances after her experiences in small business consulting, financial planning, and wealth management. She's a TED speaker whose work has been featured in the New York Times, New York Magazine, Time, Bloomberg, Forbes, Fortune, Vice, Refinery29, and Business Insider. She also has an amazing newsletter that you should definitely check out and is a great artist. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to chat with you. We are actually friends IRL and met a few years ago at a business conference and Paco is just one of my favorite people in business and in life. And so I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. I wanted to congratulate you on your new book, Finance for the People. I think it is a wonderful go-to guide for personal finance for everyday people. Yeah, I am so excited that we uh, that our paths have crossed many, many times and that we've gotten to know each other over the years. It, it, I remember it started with, you know, corn dogs under a tent and here we are, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and here we are you know, being uh, professional adults. Look at that. Oh, man. Yeah, that was 2018. I think QuickBooks Connect. We were at party eating weird carnival food. Yep. Lots Having a great fun. time. It, that man pre-pandemic life i'm having memories um <laughs> anyways but i just wanted to congratulate you on the book i thought it was so amazing and fantastic and as i was telling paco right before we hit record is you know i've been in the finance world for almost eight years now i'm very lucky in the sense that i get to read a lot of finance books people are like sending me their books they want me to check it out and i'm so excited it's one of my favorite parts of the job 
But I'll be honest, you know, because I've been a personal finance writer and because I've been in this space for so long, sometimes it just feels like you're reading and writing the same thing again and again and again. And your book was such a breath of fresh air for me. I finished the book like a little bit less than a week and just devoured it. And it was one of those things where you just wanted to keep reading. And so for for listeners, there's amazing stories in the book really fun illustrations. It's written in a way that's very actionable, tangible, resourceful. None of this like inspiration porn, none of this like shaming (laughs) stuff, very much about mental health and money, which is why Paco is on the show today, because there's so much good stuff. So to get started, you know, you had an early career in financial services And I wanted to ask you, you know, how did that experience affect your financial life and your desire to write this book? I think every job that I had gave me little lessons. And the very first job I had in financial services, I applied for a job for what the internet said was a credit manager. And I had no idea, you know, I'm like 20 years old, maybe. Um, I had no idea what a credit manager for Bank of America was. And then I get there, (laughs) I get there and it's a debt collection job. And part of the interview is like role playing. So I have to role play with one of the managers. I have to try to collect money from her and it's awkward. I've never done it before. And she's pushing back and, you know, we're sitting right across the table from each other. And I was like, oh, for sure. I didn't get this job. I was terrible. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I got the job some way, somehow. And, you know, they they hire a bunch of people at once. If I can remember correctly, it's like a class of 40 or something like that. And then you go into this literal classroom environment. They teach you how to collect. They teach you how to use all the software. But I remember with that job, the thing that I learned was that people have a lot of shame when it comes to money and they're uncomfortable talking about it. And I spent uh, five days a week, four hours a day, just sitting in a call center, asking people to pay the bank back the money that they borrowed. And from there, I mean, I got really good at talking about money. I felt like if I could ask a stranger for, you know, uh, two payments on their Ford F-150, I can talk to absolutely anyone about money. So that's one of the lessons I learned as a debt collector. Um, I mean, everything I learned about personal finance, I learned working, you know, as a executive assistant and then as a junior financial planner for the financial planning firm. I worked as a business consultant where I learned how to do bookkeeping and now I run a bookkeeping agency. So, you know, every job has really not just given me hard skills, but it's really helped me kind of navigate how I think about money, how other people think about money, like especially working in business consulting, working with a lot of creative people, a lot of designers. It's so easy to see that people get so scared when like a piece of mail from the IRS comes or they don't want to even write the, you know, they get nervous when they're writing a check for whatever reason it's triggering for them. So every job has been really eye-opening in terms of how I think about money and how others feel about money. Yeah, you shared so many good insights. And I can imagine that your experience as a debt collector taught you a lot about the emotions around money and especially debt. And actually, it reminded me of this funny experience where a few years ago, I actually was contacted by a debt collector, but it was an error. So this is a funny story. So as you know, as a business owner, we're supposed to make Q4 payments in Mm -hmm. January. So For some reason, I put the tax date as that current year instead of for Q4 the previous year. 
And so like six months later, I had a debt collection agency call me and they're like, you owe the city of LA thousands of dollars. And I was like, no, I don't. I promise I paid taxes. And <laughs> I had to like weasel my way into figuring out that, oh my gosh, I put the wrong year. And so it's triggering this automatic like collection, but it was an error on my part. And I, it all, all is resolved. But that was such a scary experience to have this debt collector like, they're like, is this Melanie Lockhart? Do you live at blah, 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 blah? We're calling on behalf of city of Los Angeles. You owe blah, 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 thousands of dollars. And it was so frightening. And it really does kind of feel like bullying in a way. And when you feel backed into a corner and someone's saying, give me money, you either have to be very strong and be like, I know I didn't make a mistake. Or if you did make a mistake, then it feels even probably doubly triggering and awful to have to deal with that. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, especially like one of my stories, one of the narratives that's a through line for my life, you know, one of the things I felt like I had to be in my family to be known, to be seen, to be loved was uh, responsible. And so when you go outside of the lines of what responsible looks like, which, you know, is maybe not making your payment on time for whatever reason, um, that can definitely be triggering. And I mean, I trust me, I totally understand you know, what it's like for people to feel attacked in that way. I was on the other side of those calls all, you know, all day long or half the day long. And so I had to really learn how to talk to people like I'm a person and they're a person and to get to the root of the issue. And a lot of the times it was easy because, you know, somebody was like on vacation or they forgot or they got mixed up or sometimes there were funnier stories like some guy hit a deer two times in a month, which was oh, no. uncharacteristic. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I am still the same Paco today that I was when I was a collector, you know, in the sense that I I can't speak for all collect collection agents, but I really wanted to help people. You know, I really wanted to understand what was going on and to help the guy who hit the deer twice. And I wanted to, you know, help people. But what was really illuminating was really eye-opening too was sometimes people couldn't make the two ends meet and that just asks a larger question right of inequality of of why is it like this and how can people find their agency and their power when they feel like they're they're victim to circumstance you know so yeah this um this world of personal finance on its surface you know i think it's easy to do the easy things like tell people they're they shouldn't spend more than they earn and all that good stuff. But what's really hard is when you're, when you don't shy away from the fact that there's all these other factors at play, like trauma and fear of authority and inequality and racism and all that, all that stuff, you know, all of that stuff and high inflation, which we're dealing with currently, you know, wage stagnation that hasn't improved in decades. And I, I saw this post on social media where it was like, the math isn't mathing. <laughs> and <laughs> that's just like, yeah, that's how I feel about so much of personal finance. The math isn't mathing. And we're really trying so desperately to make it work, but it's not working. And I think it's important for us to realize that it's not all about a moral failing or personal responsibility that, yeah, there are larger systemic issues for us to take into account that we have nothing to do with. As of a couple of days ago, there's a new war for us to worry about. So, I mean, who knows how that's going to affect inflation, the economy, you know, all of these other things like 
obviously right now the priority is human life and what's going on and that's obviously impacting our mental health as well speaking for myself here it's definitely impacting my mental health the past few days so um sorry that was a slight tangent there but uh wanted to talk to you more about your book and kind of money and mental health so you know you touch on the concepts of eudaimonia and gratitude and i'd love for you to share more about especially that first concept with our listeners and how both of those things can help mental health and money certainly um eudaimonia eudaimonia i'm not sure what the correct pronunciation is i but... don't know either so <laughs> I'm, I'm relying on you <laughs> okay i think it's i think it's eudaimonic like a diamond i think okay. is the pronunciation um when I was researching the book and trying to help people get a grip on their spending and kind of take a step back and look at spending from all these different angles, not just the, you know, you need to be personally, you, you need to have personal responsibility, but also what are all these like invisible factors at play that are, that are maybe kind of manipulating us, right? Like social media and that whole role that that world plays on how we spend our money and how we compare mm -hmm. ourselves to one another. And one of the things I, I learned about was this concept of the hedonic treadmill. It's also called human adaptation. And it's a theory that states that human beings will tend to, you know, even when a really great thing happens, or when a really bad thing happens, their happiness might go up or it might dip down. But we have this tendency for our, our happiness to reach a baseline level. And some of the trouble, some of the challenge is when we think that something is going to make us happy, we might, you know, make a bad decision in terms of how we spend our money, right? We think moving to a nicer place or buying a nicer desk or buying a car that's a lot more expensive. We think that's going to make us happy, but human adaptation tells us you might be happy for a few months, but you're going to return to that baseline level of happiness and you're still going to owe that extra money for that monthly payment, for example. And so I was doing research and I was like, how do you get off the treadmill and still participate in life, right? Mm -hmm. And Aristotle came up with this theory of happiness called eudaimonic happiness. And he gives six pillars, actually. And a lot of them are how I think a lot of artists live their lives. Um, eudaimonic happiness is less about acquiring things. Like the number one principle is self-inquiry and, and, you know, trying to understand yourself. Another thing is like finding activities that are like a joyful struggle. And I think a lot of people like that's basically a hobby, right? Like figuring out how to throw a pot or how to knit a scarf or how to have the perfect form when you're doing an overhead squat or how to paint a picture, how to brew your own beer. All those things are like ways that we can joyfully struggle. And this concept of eudaimonic happiness is a way to think about happiness from a really holistic approach. And it's kind of the antidote to, to the hedonic treadmill. And the other thing, uh, gratitude was the other thing you talked about. And with gratitude, I view gratitude as the antidote for scarcity. It's kind of like the way that we can hit control copy on our keyboards and that's a shortcut to copy text on our computers. I think having a gratitude practice is like the control C or like a shortcut for our brains and our bodies to kind of snap out of this feeling of scarcity and kind of step into this feeling of abundance. And I know that sounds corny. I know that sounds, you know, sounds so simple. It is simple, but it's not always easy. It's not always easy to like take that breath, take that beat, like to really 
have that practice and feel what gratitude feels like in your body. And, you know, there's all these things in our world that are pushing us towards scarcity, like this whole NFT, cryptocurrency, Web3 game, buying land in the metaverse. If you just <laughs> step back and look at what's going on, they're creating artificial scarcity in a place where there shouldn't be scarcity. It's the freaking Internet. Like, there's no scarcity there. We're making up this universe as we speak. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yet they're capping. They're capping the amount of board yacht club apes. They're apes. They're capping the amount of property that you can buy in the metaverse, they're creating these artificial constraints, which create scarcity. And so that's just one, one way that scarcity is amplified or, or being pushed onto us in our daily lives. And, you know, unfortunately, it's up to us to try to spot when that's happening and to find like guardrails in our own minds. And having a gratitude practice to me is one way to do that. Thank you so much for sharing more about that. Yeah, the eudaimonic idea was so life-changing for me in the book. And I was like, oh, this is a concept I can grasp onto. And you know, when you read a book and you're like, this concept made me reading this book totally worth it. Like that was one of those moments for me. And so thank you. Oh my and, God. I'm so happy to learn that. Yeah. And, you know, I've shared on the podcast a few times how my therapist suggested that I start doing gratitude lists, you know, three a day. And I thought it was really stupid and cheesy at first. And then about a week later after doing it, I was like, oh, it really does work. Like you start focusing on the things you have and the things you are grateful for rather than the things that you don't have, because it is kind of like a retraining process. I mean, our brains are almost wired towards negativity and seeing what we don't have. And especially, as you mentioned, with social media, comparing all of the time. But gratitude is a way to kind of get back to center and say, I'm so grateful for four walls and for food and for heat and for clean water and for safety and for health. And just saying those things out loud right now made me feel better because there's a lot going on in the world and there's a lot of people who don't have all of those things. And so it's one way to take inventory about our rich life that I think doesn't have to do with money. I'm talking about money, you know, financial stuff can be triggering. And in the book, you share the concept of window of tolerance. Can you explain what that is and how people should use it relating to their finances? Absolutely. So there's a psychiatrist by the name of Daniel J. Siegel, and he coined the term window of tolerance. And what the window of tolerance is, is it's basically like an optimal zone where you're, you are within your nervous system, where you have this normal brain body functioning. It's a place where you have regulated your nervous system and so that you can deal with just the natural ups and downs of, of being a human being on planet earth. Um, when you're in your window of tolerance, you can, you can reflect and you can think rationally and calmly and you can make decisions without feeling overwhelmed or without, you know, completely withdrawing and checking out. And when we're inside this window, it's just the most effective way to deal with day-to-day -day life. When we're outside of the window, we're either hyper aroused or hypo aroused. And it, basically our nervous system is, is disrupted. And on the hypo side, that looks like being kind of zoned out and numb and frozen and withdrawn. And then on the hyper side, it can look like anxiety, overwhelm. You can feel really out of control. You could feel angry. There's just, you know, your, your, your emotions are really sweeping you up. 
And when it comes to making financial decisions, there are a lot of times where we look at people's behaviors and we wonder, why are people acting in a way that is outside of their best interests? And like the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to this are like folks who buy lottery tickets or folks who um, take out payday loans. And we think that they know that they shouldn't do that. And oftentimes they know that they, they shouldn't be doing that. But if you are trapped in this cycle of stress, you might be trapped in terms of being anxious, right? So your decision making is coming from that anxious place. It's not coming from a cognitive you know, a place where you're using cognition. And so that's why it's important to understand what's even happening, that your state of being, where your nervous system is at, you know, you need to learn how to self-soothe and regulate so that when it comes to really big financial decisions, like should I go to law school and take out six figures of debt? Or should I let my friend borrow five figures of money? Or, you know, should I put in this much money into cryptocurrency, things like that? You want to make sure that you're in the window of tolerance so that you're not fighting against, you're not making like a, a, a worse situation for yourself, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. And I loved that concept too, that you mentioned, you know, the window of tolerance. And I think it's so useful to use as a framework for big financial decisions and also just in your relationships, you know, talking about mental health and money and kind of interconnectedness, like when you're dealing with a partner or a friend or a work conflict, you know, sometimes we get triggered, we get upset, we are kind of out of sorts. But when we make responses or react in that moment, sometimes we don't react as our best selves and we end up making not the best decisions for ourselves as well. Absolutely. And to get into your window of tolerance, you know, it takes some like observation of yourself, right? You kind of have to learn how to, how to see how you're feeling in any, at any given moment, which is why, you know, I think meditation and just trying to be quiet and still is important because that allows you to start observing yourself. And then it, depending on where you're outside of the window, you know, for some people taking five deep breaths is what they need. And for other people, you know, like blasting Lizzo very loudly is what they need. I, <laughs> I tend to, do the the latter, but you know you you figure out what works for you. You could smell essential oils. Um, you can take five minutes to watch the wind blowing the leaves on a tree, or you know you can jump up and down. You have to figure out what works for you. And the good thing about all this stuff is, once you get into the practice of it, you know it becomes easier to implement, and you don't always have to stop your whole day, especially when it comes to making smaller financial decisions, you can kind of just take a beat, observe your behavior and realize like, you know, it's kind of like going to the grocery store hungry, right? You're, you realize, oh, shoot, I should probably eat like a Luna bar before I go in there kind of deal. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I love all the things that you mentioned about, you know, it's a practice and how it takes time to really observe your thoughts and your responses. And I think some of the most important work that we can do with our finances, with our mental health, just in our life in general, is creating more space between kind of our initial impulse and reaction and the way we actually react. And, you know, I used to go talk to my therapist about like, when I'm triggered, I go from zero to 100 in a second. And mm -hmm. before I would go drink or engage in other harmful activities. And it was just like, that was the next step. And it took so long to kind of uncouple that 
bad coping mechanism and have that not be the automatic next step. And I think for people who are buying lottery tickets, who are, you know, engaging in payday loans or doing other harmful behaviors for their mental health, it really takes a while to observe what's going on and then to create more space between that impulse and that reaction, especially if that's been kind of the road you've been driving on. If you think of your brain as kind of these grooves, you solidify again and again and again, it's so hard to step back and start over, but it is possible. It's hard, but when you start to realize that you can rewire your brain, it feels like magic. It feels like, Mm -hmm. are you kidding me? Like, you know, there's, it feels mystical. Like you have an opportunity to change your reality. And I know that sounds maybe nuts, but I mean, when you change your perspective on something, you're, you're literally changing your reality with how you relate to and how you feel about and how you interact with that thing. And that's, what's so exciting about, you know, learning more about who you are is that ability to, to make magic in a sense. I love it. I love it. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. I wanted you to pause real quick and take a mindful minute. Close your eyes and take a deep breath. And exhale. Take a deep breath again. And exhale. Taking a moment for yourself is so important for your mental health. Now, before we get back to the show, I just wanted to say, if you are enjoying this episode, please review the podcast and share it on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockhart and share your thoughts. It'll really help spread the word about the show and help others with their money and mental health. You can also support this independent podcast and buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. So one of the things you mentioned in the book that I was so intrigued by and something that, you know, I've covered in Dear Debt and obviously Mental Health and Wealth, you talk about debt can be due to unhealed trauma. How can people recognize if that's the case and also move past it? Well, disclaimer, I'm not a psychologist or a therapist, so this isn't, you know, advice in that sense. I will say that anyone who thinks that they're dealing with unhealed trauma, I recommend working with a professional. Um, Talk therapy is great, but there are also lots of other forms of therapy that you can engage in that might be helpful to you when it comes to kind of unearthing, dealing with those wounds and healing them. But in terms of debt and how that can be a, a signal or that can show a symptom of the greater issue of unhealed trauma. I mean, basically, if the math ought to make sense, like you're earning enough to meet all of your needs and you have money left over for fun stuff and you're able to even save for the future, but you still find yourself in debt, right? The math ought to be working out there. That's probably a sign that something's going on beneath the surface, that maybe you're using buying things and living outside of your means as, you know, a way to soothe or even a way to like continue to stay attached to kind of the chaos of, of not having enough or, you know, whatever that narrative is. It could be uh, kind of living on the edge. Maybe you're attached to that kind of chaos or, 
you know, just kind of, I mean, being attached to chaos in general, I can, I can relate to that. I, I like having chaos in my life. I grew up in a household that wasn't very calm. I grew up with addiction and, you know, I find myself as an adult, I like danger. I like to do dangerous things. I like, like powerlifting. I love powerlifting. Why? It's kind of dangerous. You could get hurt. I like boxing like Melanie. Why? It's kind of mm-hmm. dangerous. You could get hurt. I I just like that. I love doing podcasts like this because you have to think on your feet and it's a little, it's, you know, there's an edge that you have to have in order to do it and to do it well. And I think for me, like, I have been in credit card debt as well. And there's all these other instances in my life where I've blown up relationships and I've done things that were not graceful. And a lot of it for me was unhealed trauma. One of the things I found out recently that I actually shared with Melanie the last time we hung out was I just, I didn't realize how not feeling safe and secure in my childhood is this through line in my life. And I did all these things in my life and I made all these choices that helped kind of um, secure is the wrong word. It helped solidify that narrative and make it true. And so again, this is like, you know, 30 years in the making for me trying to understand who I am and why am I acting in a way that's outside of what I want to accomplish? I think that's another question is if you've ever felt the feeling of like, taking on this debt or acting in this way with my debt is outside of who I think I am, maybe you should start to ask more questions. You know, where does this behavior come from? But I also just want to say like disclaimer, um, a lot of times debt is not just because of unhealed trauma. It's because of inequality. It's because you're not able to earn enough to meet your obligations, to meet your needs. And that's a tough position to be in. And that's a tough thing to talk about when it comes to personal finances that you do have agency, but we are also still victims of our circumstances. Totally. Yeah. I think for the latter point, it's like, we can't just all, you know, lift yourselves up by the bootstraps and <laughs> exactly. figure it out. And like that narrative just drives me bananas. And I really would prefer to retire the phrase, if I can do it, so can you like from all of personal finance writing ever. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, you know, for the former unhealed trauma, it's like I've definitely heard so many stories of people who they have enough in theory with their income and can manage their expenses. But yeah, they're kind of recreating that environment of chaos through overspending, through getting into debt. Or um, I've also heard of people, you know, getting certain kind of payments, you know, whether it's a life insurance payout because of a death or a lawsuit payout because of something horrific that happened and people spending that money and not saving or investing in it or using it in their best um, you know, form because it feels uncomfortable and awful and triggering in a way. And all of that makes so much sense to me. And it's so clear that these experiences in our life can really manifest itself through money. And, you know, whether we're conscious of it or not, we can be recreating that trauma or continuing that trauma. And obviously, no one is doing this willingly or consciously. No one wants to be traumatized or tormented by their actions or their thoughts. But it really goes to show what a powerful hold trauma can have over you where it feels like it is the director in charge of your life and it takes a lot to get out of it but it is possible and i think awareness is really that first step 
Definitely. Yeah. Trauma, I often describe as, and even beyond, like, it doesn't even have to be trauma. It could just be like the narratives that, that you've heard. It's like a hand reaching through space and time and it's directing, it's forcing you to behave in a certain way today. And a lot of us, unless we take the time to reflect and ask ourselves, why, why do I keep doing this? Um, that hand continues to, you know, interfere with who, what the things that you do today. Uh, yeah. So many of us are unhealed children posing as adults and trying to figure out how we can all integrate it, you know, and be, be healed and okay. I, I really think that's true. And I think it's something that we can all just be more aware of and also have more compassion about because we've all been through so much, I think, you know? Absolutely. I think normalizing these kinds of conversations is really important. And sorry to say his name, but like, look at Donald Trump and the pain that he's, what he's unleashed on our society. That man is in a lot of pain. And if we could understand how to look at people like that and recognize that at the end of the day, they're trying to get, I don't know, their father's love or approval or something, you know, if we can look at it through those very empathetic eyes, I mean, imagine how much better the world would be. And I know that sounds very idealistic of me, but I mean, it really does simply start with with being able to to recognize that in others and to have an open heart. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think so many of the things that we're witnessing right now <laughs> are related to childhood trauma and not being seen and heard and really counteracting in the exact opposite direction and, you know, really taking up space and power in a way that is detrimental to everybody, you know? Mm -hmm. I just thought like, what if instead of in school, instead of teaching me like the Pythagorean theorem, which still occupies space in my mind, I still <laughs> have it memorized. Or like, instead of teaching us how to calculate the slope of a line, Y equals MX plus B, what if they taught kids like how to take five deep breaths when they want to punch somebody else in the face? Or, you know, like how to how to meditate with their eyes open. Like imagine society if we just dropped Pythagorean theorem and slope of a line and switched it out for all these ways that we can regulate our nervous system and, you know, relate to ourselves and relate to one another. Oh my gosh, it would be such a game changer. I've honestly <laughs> thought about that. I was like, if I were president, I would put meditation, breath work, therapy, and boxing in schools. Yes. And I bet you, man, that would just be a game changer for so many people because it would give people a way to process anger. It would give people a way to regulate their nervous systems. And so much of the mental health work I've done in the past few years, and then also kind of realizing what the core problem was with drinking, it's like, oh my gosh, all of this comes down to me trying to calm myself down and self-soothe. It just wasn't done in the, quote, best way for myself. Absolutely. And I think that's what we're all trying to do in one way or another. We just don't realize it. We're like, why am I eating so much? Why am I drinking so much? Why am I smoking so much? Why am I spending so much? Because it feels good and it calms you down in some kind of way. But that, you know, is a different way that we're altering our nervous system, but there are different ways as well that we can explore. Right. There are different tools we, we can use. So in your book, you also talk about investing. And I loved that chapter because it was so comprehensive and powerful and talking about the magic of compounding interest and building wealth. And something you also mention is kind of 
this conflict between capitalism and supporting companies and investing. So what is your advice for someone who is not in personal finance, they're not in our communities, but they know that they should have some kind of semblance of personal finance knowledge because they're a human, which is, I think, the whole point of your book, Finance for the People. What would you say to someone who hates capitalism and doesn't want to support capitalist structures and they feel like they shouldn't invest in companies, but they need to invest to build wealth? I think that there's a lot of different ways that you could go about this. This is going to sound facetious, but it's not. Every day that you choose to participate in the modern economy, you are opting in. And of course, you can opt out. But I think most people are not going to opt out. I'm not going to opt out. I love the internet. I love air conditioning. I love my little phone that, you know, just vibrates and gives me information and makes me feel all sorts of funny ways. I love all that stuff and I don't want to give it up. (laughs) Right. So I'm choosing every day to participate in the modern world, in modern economy. And so now we have this negotiation going on. How can I be a good person? And, um, what are the actions I need to take in order to be a good person in the world and not, you know, harm earth more and not be exploitative? I mean, unfortunately, the challenge is that we have to figure out ways where it's going to be okay for us to do things that are not going to be good in the end. And let me just say that the mechanism for profiting off of the stock market is what is inherently bad. It is exploitative. It is extractive because the way that it works is the company will make a profit. And instead of giving that profit to the people who helped create that profit to the workers, it gets extracted by the shareholders. That's what's happening when you get paid dividends and interest when you're invested in a company. Of course, it's possible to be a conscientious objector of the stock market, but I don't think that that is the way to go. The way that I've lived my life is I have kind of infiltrated, right? I get into the finance industry. I understand how it works and I take the parts that I need to take, right? And I use that to then create the change. So I am a proponent of change from within. I realize a lot of people are on, they have a different school of thought. They're from the school of thought of burn it down. Totally respect that. And I totally support that. That hasn't worked for me in my life and maybe one day it will. But for now, I'm a, you know, work from within the system kind of a person. So I think it's important to to invest despite the fact that it is extractive, despite the fact that it is inherently immoral. And the reason is because generating wealth, having money is money is a proxy for power. And so if you do want to see things change, you have to get money. You have to create wealth. And then you have to use that money and use that wealth as a megaphone to amplify your values and to amplify what you want to see exist in the world. You have to build the things that you want to see exist in the world. And that's how change comes about. And so if you want to create a collective that, you know, shares profits with the collective instead of enriching the CEO, great, do that. But you're still going to need money to do that. And if you want to create an organization that's like an anti-startup, instead of getting a bunch of people to, you know, invest and then 10xing their money, maybe you want to create a startup that is going to take all of those profits and it's going to distribute it to the community that it serves. Great. 
do that. But what do you need? You're going to need money. And so I'm going to get off my soapbox real soon. All of that is to say, <laughs> if you want to create change in the world, we have to get the money. It's undeniable. Yeah, no, I love that point. And I think supporting women and minorities through wealth generation is one way that we can give back to the communities that we are a part of and that we serve and to do our own part to kind of equal the wealth distribution. I mean, I know we're not going to be as close as we want to, or, you know, it's going to be so hard to close that gap, but we can take the steps that we can to try to close that gap and support others. I always think about how I can create my own micro economy in the people I hire and the people I work with and the purchases I make. And I think that's super important to consider, like, what can you do with money and who can you support? Absolutely. And the idea of like building wealth is a very relative term, right? For some people, they think having wealth is having like a casual $2 million. And for them, that's very possible given their circumstances. For other people, that seems impossible. But the other side of that is, what if you could amass $100,000? What would that do for your life? How would you be able to, again, support things that are more sustainable and invest in, like you said, the communities that you want to invest in and support the people, create the micro economies? Having wealth just gives you that freedom, not to mention, you know, the ability to be there if your family member is sick or, you know, just so that you can come to this world with with a wholeness, right? And feeling less stressed and being able to navigate these things rationally. It's it's only a net, net, net positive, I think, you know, even though, again, even though the mechanisms are extractive and exploitative, I think at the end of the day, we're pretty locked into the system and I think we need to find a way to use it and to create change from within. Yes, love it. So in the book, you also shared some of your amusing and terrible experiences with financial professionals. What type of behavior or language should people be aware of to avoid getting scammed or find themselves in a bad situation? I think there are so many scams and I'm so fascinated by all the different scams. And I always think, wow, if this scammer just put as much energy into another legit thing, they'd probably be okay. Like maybe they wouldn't you know, make as much money, but that always intrigues me, um, all the scammers who put in all that effort to scam. Um, okay, to, but to answer the question, I think one way you can avoid a bad situation is if you notice somebody is rushing you to make a decision, right? They're like artificially mm -hmm. imposing some kind of scarcity of time, like time's running out. This offer is not going to last or other people are going to come and buy these NFTs or anytime you're feeling rushed, I think that's a really good sign for you to just pause and say, why am I being rushed here? Like, what's really going on? And, you know, not everybody who sells real estate is a bad person, but oftentimes you'll, I've run into that with like folks who are trying to close real estate deals, right? The person who's going to benefit from the commission are the ones saying, hey, you got to push this through and get this done and move quickly. And sure, given the housing market and how hot it is and the, the fact that supply is never keeping up with demand. Sure. There is a need to move with urgency, but rushing, I think is a really good, it's a really good sign that something, you know, you need to pause and reflect and also rushing, I think can activate us in terms of feeling like scarcity. Right. Um, mm -hmm. the other word is guarantee. Um, when I worked as a financial planner, like the SEC would monitor our emails or, you know, like they would be subject to being monitored. And I remember being curious, of course, and asking my boss, like, 
what words, what words in what, you know, in the email would like flag it. And he was like, never say the word guarantee. And um, that stuck with me. And it's true. When I think about it, if anyone is ever guaranteeing you a return or guaranteeing something, how do they know? How could they possibly know? Because the world is crazy and we really can't predict things. We just can't. We can't predict what the stock market is going to do as much as we think we can. We just can't. So guaranteeing a return, guaranteeing anything feels kind of like, okay, how do you know? The truth is like to build wealth and with a lot of, you know, through through financial instruments, aka investments, it should be boring. It should be very boring, like watching paint dry for 40 years boring. <laughs> yes. It shouldn't be exciting. Don't touch the paint either. Right. I mean, if you had like, if you had like, you know, money that you wanted to use that you don't care that you lose, like we can use nice round numbers. Let's say you have a hundred thousand dollars invested in the market across retirement and various brokerage kind of safe stuff. And you were like, but I want to play with like $2,500. Cool. Go have fun with that. But just, you know, it's not supposed to be sexy. It's not supposed to be fun right now. It feels sexy and fun with Bitcoin and Ethereum, NFTs and web three. Cool. Like, yeah, you know, through throw a few coins at it if you're, if you want to participate, but realize that we have no idea what's going to happen. And um, the final one is if it, if it feels too good to be true, probably is. So proceed with caution. Uh, yes. Yes. That's just a general life lesson, <laughs> <laughs> money or otherwise. <laughs> Absolutely. Always have a healthy level of skepticism and just, you know, curiosity about what you're getting into. And yes, definitely agree with the guarantee part like no one can guarantee anything there are no guarantees in life so definitely not um any other thoughts you'd love to share from your book or about the process or anything else for our listeners i mean i just thought of one other thing to add to the last question and so when i worked as a financial planner my boss reshaped the way i think about money and risk and opportunity and how the world works and business in general. And I'm forever changed and I'm forever grateful that he taught me how to think about it in this way. And one of the other things you can think about when it comes to borrowing money from the bank or how an investment works or whether or not, you know, it's an opportunity for you to get into a certain kind of business, just follow the money. How does money move through an organization, through a business model, through, you know, how does it work from an investment perspective? If you can tell yourself the story or learn the story of how to follow that money, there's so much more that will be revealed to you. And you'll just start thinking about money from a different perspective. You'll be able to have a little bit more of a critical view, but you'll also be able to just understand you know, the, the money part. And that's not always the most important part of a story, right? Like you sell a, you sell a book and then the book gets turned into a movie and that's amazing. Um, that maybe that the, the following the money is not the most interesting part of the story, but it's part of the story. And I think that we should all, you know, take the time to, to, to think about things through that lens. And I think that that'll give people the kind of critical analytical bend that they need to have when navigating a lot of these decisions. Thank you. I love that reframe and kind of consideration. Where can people find you and work with you and buy your book? 
You can find me at thehellyeahgroup.com and you can sign up for my weekly newsletter, The Nerd Letter. And um, I will pepper your inbox every Wednesday and that's how we can stay in touch. And you can buy Finance for the People wherever you buy books. Perfect. Definitely check out Paco's newsletter. It's one of my favorite emails every week. Not even lying. <laughs> Thank chock you. Chock full of value and fun illustrations and thought-provoking musings about money. And the book Finance for the People was incredible and amazing. And definitely check it out. Thank you so much for being on the show, Paco. Thank you so much for having me and letting me just ramble on and on and on and on. I appreciate it. <laughs> my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.